there was a piece in 2007, I believe, mm-hmm. by Anatole Levin that made the case that pushing NATO expansion could force us into a new Cold War with Russia. Hmm. 2007, right? Um, Much think. Exactly. Um, I know. I, I read that. And it was literally like it could have been written, you know, a year ago. Yeah. And here we are in a really precarious situation with, with Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But I think if you look back to those conversations that we wanted to reignite, it's really a lot of the issues that are driving our politics mm-hmm. right now. We were somewhat ahead of our time. I mentioned foreign policy. That first editorial also talks about the challenges of assimilation. When you have unchecked immigration coming into this country, you don't take the challenge of assimilation seriously, you're going to have a lot of problems. We're Mm -hmm. we're seeing that now. Uh, Political economy, right? We said that we would question the benefits and point to the pitfalls of the global free trade economy. That's only been exacerbated over the past 20 years. Um, And then just sort of a robust defense of American culture, of faith and family, of really, I think, the bedrock of any worthwhile conservatism uh, we felt that that too often got short shifts in conservative politics. So that was a lot of the impetus behind the magazine. Um, launched in 2002 with with Iraq Folly on the cover. And uh, it's been a good 20 years since. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment. And this week, and really for the rest of the season, it's just going to be me. You see here, as of uh, this episode's release, uh, Nick uh, and his wife, Evie, are due tomorrow. <laughs> and so uh, they are on much needed uh, leave. And uh, Nick is still going to be helping out with all things American Moment. Um, ship wouldn't run without him, but uh, he will not be taping the rest of the season with me. Um, but fear not, we're going to have fantastic episodes all the way through to the very end, including today's episode, which is uh, with Emil Doak, the executive director of the American Ideas Institute, which publishes the American Conservative. One of the few magazines worth a damn. Uh, look, when we launched our organization, we had a choice. We could have uh, done the standard thing, which is uh, publish our launch op-ed in the Wall Street Journal or National Review or you know one of these other publications. Uh, we've had friends that have launched in the Federalist before, and and you know there would have been pros and cons to all of those, a lot of cons. Um, but we thought that there was only one place that was worth putting our launch op-ed in. It was titled uh, "The We Must Build an Elite for This American Moment. And we published it in The American Conservative because it has been right from the beginning. The American Conservative is celebrating 20 years of being correct and forthright and honest about issues ranging from immigration to foreign policy to culture to family to trade and more. And we think it's extremely important to honor them in that way. They're still publishing awesome stuff today. Micro Metacroft over there who edits their website, Helen Andrews, who edits the magazine, um, all the junior staff, they're all great people. Some of them are our people. We made those recommendations. Um, but so we're definitely biased, but um, we just love the place. And so Emil and I got to sit down and have a long conversation about the history of the American conservative and um, how he he thinks about the world. It's a, it's a fun, interesting uh, episode. Uh, hopefully you'll listen through to the end and hopefully you'll join us and the American Conservative for their uh, 20th anniversary gala. Um, it will be on November 17th. Uh, we are co-sponsors on it. Uh, and so we'll hope to see you there. Go to theamericanconservative.com in order to find all the information about that. Uh, but 
to finish out Emil's formal bio, he is the executive director of the American Ideas Institute, which publishes the American Conservative. He's a graduate of Georgetown University, where he studied political philosophy and theology, and previously worked in education before returning to the field of his studies. His writing has appeared in First Things, Front Porch Republic, Chronicles, a magazine of American culture, and elsewhere. He's a proud Virginian, as he will relentlessly tell you, and him and his wife live in the historic district of their hometown, Herndon. We'll go now to Emil Doug. Emil, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, it feels like it's been a long time coming. It shouldn't have taken 80 episodes, but uh, there is an august occasion uh, in the coming days. That is to say the 20th anniversary of the American Conservative. And I want to hear, uh, much like we often hear about our guests, the entire history of the magazine. But I want to bring your history first. How did you end up at the point where you are uh, the executive director of uh, the only magazine that's been worth a damn, I think, for the last <laughs> 20 years or so? Uh, tell us the tale. Uh, yeah, pure luck. It's called, it's called, it's called failing up. Oh, yeah, I yeah, believe. yeah. I'm um, a big fan of that. <laughs> yes, no, exactly. Um, so I'm from Herndon, Virginia. It's the first thing people should know about me. I love my hometown. Very still, still rooted. Yeah, in that you place. have like Texan levels of if you don't, if no one asks, you'll mention it anyway. <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, it's everywhere. It's my bio and everything. Um, yeah. And I actually think it's really important politically, yeah. which we can return to as well. Uh, but no, I grew up there. Uh, it's, you know, a suburb of D.C., I always like to say that it is its own town in its own right. It's not just another crappy suburb of the swamp. Um, but that was how I got my start. And then I, I went to Georgetown to study political philosophy in college. Did the whole D.C. thing. So, so you lived in the deep state state and then you went to the deep state school. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, that's exactly right. Um, yeah. And I, I did the whole D.C. thing, did internships, uh, AEI, a couple other political places around town. Um, and how then, many of your previous employers would disavow you now? <laughs> <laughs> that is a, that is a good question. I'll have to ask them. Yeah. Um, but really just got kind of burnt out on the whole thing. And so when I was, uh, when I was graduating college, I had my political philosophy degree, political theory degree. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I was really thinking about two tracks. Uh, one was just continuing to do the whole political thing in DC. Um, and two was teaching. I thought it'd be kind of cool to be like a small town teacher and coach and whatever and just do that. Mm -hmm. um, so I was pursuing both of those tracks, ended up with an opportunity to teach at a small test prep firm because that was the only place that would hire me. I didn't have a teaching degree or anything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and an opportunity to join the Federalist Society as well as mm -hmm. like a sort of like entry level development guy. Um, for a couple of reasons, I chose the teaching gig. Uh, one was that, again, I was just kind of burnt out on the DC thing and I wanted to explore something different. And two is that it paid better. And I, was, I, was, uh, I was getting married young. I was one of those irresponsible people who gets married right out of college. Yeah. Um, Your high school sweetheart, right? Yeah, elementary school, actually. Elementary school. That's why I'm met. so wedded to her in Virginia. I mean, it's, uh, it's where everything happened for me. So yeah, I took the, the teaching job. Um, I did that for about three years. It was fun. I mean, I really like working with students, with high schoolers. It's a fun time in life. Um, but that also got, <laughs> got burnt out on that pretty quickly as well for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, it's test prep, right? So like you see the worst of um, the modern education system. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. And especially in D.C. I mean, you're dealing with like the elite of the elite mm -hmm. of D.C. private schools. Uh, didn't love that. Dealing with the parents was the worst part. And then two, it was the Trump era, right? This was 2015 or so. And I just couldn't figure out what this Trump moment was about. Um, I'd always been a conservative and I will admit that I was late to Trump. At first, I was like, who is this, you know, thrice married New York businessman? Yeah. And why are all these social conservatives flocking to him? Um, and the more that I watched it and the more that I, that I saw a success, I got really, really interested in it. And I wanted to be part of that. So, yeah, that was about the time that the American Conservative, which I've been reading for a while, uh, was looking for a, a director of events and outreach. Um, I'd love the magazine. I was like, I'll do I'll do whatever like events. When did you first sure. discover the magazine? 
in college. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I studied at Georgetown with some really great professors, Patrick Deneen, Father James Shaw, um, uh, Josh Mitchell. And that was sort of my entry to the magazine. Deneen especially been writing for them. Um, so yeah, I discovered the magazine and it really spoke to a lot of the, the conservatism that I sort of intuitively had. Um, so yeah, around 2017, I had the opportunity to join the magazine and uh, been there since. And so you started out as a director of events and outreach and then immediately up to executive director? That's that's how we do things at Tech. That's yeah. powerful, powerful <laughs> no, stuff. No, no, I, I had a number of different uh, yeah. roles there. I did the event stuff for a while. I moved over to the fundraising side, did some programmatic stuff. Um, and then, yeah, and then when Johnny Burkham, my predecessor, now took over at ISI, the board did a search and, uh, and landed on me. Very cool. So let's talk about the American conservative. Um, I think it's very interesting because it, in many different ways, but one of the reasons why is because most of the mainstays of the quote unquote conservative movement, which I've taken to arguing is neither, um, were founded in like the 50s, 60s, 70s, sometimes in the 80s. Um, but this is a product of the 2000s. Walk me through that moment, um, story that TAC tells about um, why it came to exist in in the you know halcyon days of, I'm looking at one of the issues here on the table, October 7th, 2002. Yeah, I know. It's crazy to think back to that. I mean, a lot of what we've been doing this year for the 20th anniversary is looking back at those early days, and it's, mm -hmm. been, it's been incredible to look at. So basically, um, our three founders, Pat Buchanan, who, you know, viewers should probably know at this point, Scott McConnell was our first editor, and Taki, long Greek last name, the businessman. Um, the, Theodora Coppolis. Yes, the odd couple. Um, yeah. Really felt that the conservative movement hadn't really conserved much for far too long. Uh, it's explicitly written in the first editorial of that first issue sitting here on the desk that the magazine wanted to reignite conversations that conservatives had um, neglected for far too long, at least since the end of the Cold War. So chief among them was Iraq, right? This was the, the buildup to the Iraq war. The very first issue said Iraq folly on the cover. Mm. That didn't win us many friends <laughs> on the right of center in Washington at that time. Uh, but we really felt that we needed to recalibrate. Were you guys one of the unpatriotic conservatives? Oh, yeah. No, that was a, like 100% about TAC. I mean, yeah. that was like the, the response to the American conservative. Yeah. Uh, unpatriotic conservatives. W was that piece actually published like very shortly after the yeah. magazine launched? I think so, yeah. Okay. Um, wow. David from National Review, unpatriotic conservatives. Yeah. And yeah, that was Pat Buchanan, Scott McConnell. All those guys were the quote unquote unpatriotic mm -hmm. conservatives. Um, Buchanan's surefire flop came from, from New Republic. Mm -hmm. So we weren't received very well at the time. But I think if you look back to those conversations that we wanted to reignite, it's really a lot of the issues that are driving our politics mm -hmm. right now. We were somewhat ahead of our time. I mentioned foreign policy. That first editorial also talks about the challenges of assimilation. When you have unchecked immigration coming into this country, you don't take the challenge of assimilation seriously. You're going to have a lot of problems. We're, mm -hmm. we're seeing that now. Uh, political economy, right? We said that we would question the benefits and point to the pitfalls of the global free trade economy. That's only been exacerbated over the past 20 years. Um, and then just sort of a robust defense of American culture, of faith and family, of really, I think, the bedrock of any worthwhile conservatism. Uh, we felt that that too often got short shifts in conservative politics. So that was a lot of the impetus behind the magazine. Um, launched in 2002 with with the rack folly on the cover. And uh, it's been a good 20 years since. What was that time like being, you know, in the, I guess, eight year, uh, you know, six final years of the Bush administration being a conservative publication completely at odds with the sitting Republican president. It's a tense place to be, you know, the weekly standard experience to touch of that, I assume, during the early Trump years. What was that 
Like, I mean, obviously you're speaking through inherited memory. Yeah, but, I'm but grateful I'm sure for it's... those who fought those fights because I was, <laughs> yeah. uh, I was, what, yeah. I was 13 at I'm the I'm assuming there's blood stains <laughs> on the back of the couches at the TAC office and <laughs> yes. whatever from, from back of the day. Um, but what was that like? I mean, we, we were completely writ out of, writ, written out of the conservative movement, right? I mean, I mentioned that the initial reactions of surefire flop and unpatriotic conservatives, um, but it meant that we, you know, we, we needed to make a lot of... Um, a lot of friends in unlikely places, right? So if you look at the people who were against the Iraq war at that time, obviously you had many people on the left. I think it's really interesting to see in the context of Russia, Ukraine, how the uh, left-wing anti-war movement is like basically disappeared. Mm -hmm. What happened? Um, so we, we kind of opened up our pages sometimes to uh, heterodox left or left to center thinkers, a lot of libertarians, right? I mean, I huge credit to Ron Paul for waking up a lot of people to the failure that was Iraq in 2008. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's a strange position to be in when you are sort of a, a gadfly rather than in the, the, the heart of the movement. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a lot of lessons there. Now, one of the things I would say, too, is now, you know, in the Trump moment, things have totally shifted. And mm -hmm. a lot of those policies that were completely written out of the movement in the 2000s, I mean, the, the Republican Party today looks a lot more like Pat Buchanan's vision than it does George W. Bush's. Mm -hmm. So that's also been something that we've needed to navigate is, you know, just dispositionally changing from that gadfly who's on the outs to actually being in the movement now. Yeah. What do you make of of the analogies between the Republican Party that Pat Buchanan was trying to make and the one that Donald Trump made? Um, because I think as much as we often talk about the similarities, there are real differences, I think largely as a consequence of history, also because they're two very different men. How do you, how do you compare and contrast what it is that they stood for? I still go back to, I can't remember what year it was as recently that Matthew Walter wrote that Barstool Conservatives piece, mm. right? Um, and that is always sort of my concern with the Trump moment is that it can too easily be, be co-opted on the social conservative side into Barstool Conservatism. Mm -hmm. uh, for me personally, my politics is primarily social conservative first. I think a lot of these other issues stem from that. Uh, if we're not actually conserving these bedrock institutions of faith and family, what the heck are we doing, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I, I do think, you know, especially just looking at the two men, Buchanan versus Trump, look, I love Trump. I think he's great. Mm -hmm. um, but th they're two very different styles of approaching a social conservative politics. So that is the one thing that gives me pause. And I, I still am wrestling with um, how to process the whole Barstool conservatives thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so I, I'm, I, I think there's a lot that still needs to be worked out there for the, the current moment. You know, it's it's interesting because holding affirmatively social conservative views versus the role that so personal behavior plays in public life has always been an, an interesting tension, right? Um, because, you know, when we think of someone like David French, David French would use the personal behavior of a candidate or a public figure as an indictment of the quality of their social conservative advocacy. Uh, this is the traditional argument made against Trump, but it could also be made against a bunch of other figures that that potentially, um, you know, or essential to uh, the flourishing of the right um, uh, in, in the places where it's done well. Um, how do you navigate that tension of, you know, an, an audience for a magazine is typically older people, it's typically, you know, more personally conservative people recognizing um, the limitations of, of public figures? We ran a piece, I think it was last fall, um, I believe it was Triple Byland, 
from Sarabamari, Gladden Pappen, Chad Pecknold, I believe, um, making basically this point, uh, looking especially to, to a lot of the politicians in Europe who are espousing a very public Christianity, a very political Christianity, and their personal lives are a total wreck. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I completely take their point that, like, ultimately, we just want good policies enacted, right? Um, and I do think that for too long, the American conservative movement has been really preoccupied with the piousness or lack thereof of our political leaders. Um, but I, I mean, so I, I guess I do think, though, that um, at the end of the day, you know, for better or for worse, people are going to look at these mm-hmm. people's role models. And on the whole, it's probably better to have somebody who I would want my kids to, uh, you know, to take after than than not. Right. Variously, um, at, during the American conservatives history, you guys have often had the tagline principles over party. Um, you know, how much of the opportunities that exist on the right today do you think are because Trump was largely a restrained president and Biden hasn't been? And so the opportunities for traditional partisan polarization are aligned in a way that is beneficial to tack versus if you're two years into a Republican president, sorry, if the Republican president is bad on on foreign policy, then you're getting a bad uh, Republican party on foreign policy. Or do you think something's permanently changed? Well, you mean you mean it's better for us now that well, <laughs> there's a, a how, Democrat how, in the White House? Or? How, how much of the shifts um, are fragile? How much of the shifts are fragile because... We have a hawkish Democratic president right after a fairly restrained Republican president. I mean, I, I actually think that um, especially what we're seeing with Russia and Ukraine uh, makes a lot of sense to me. Like mm-hmm. I, I've never um, I've never seen sort of a, a foreign policy of restraint and a small C conservatism as opposed at all. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, the, the radicalism that you see from the Democratic Party, from the left on a lot of those sort of um, domestic social issues and transgenderism and and all that kind of stuff, I think pairs very nicely with a radicalism of exporting democracy to all ends of the earth and completely disregarding any sort of cultural considerations of those already there. So I'm not entirely surprised Mm -hmm. that we're seeing this shift. And my hope is that there's something ideologically consistent about it that will make, you know, the shift that I want, (laughs) the right moving towards a more restrained foreign policy actually stick in you know post wherever we are now Mm -hmm. going back over the history uh of of the magazine i mean you guys have this wonderful book out that is main street conservatism the future of the right um which is a very uh first of all just uh it's great to be able to call that the title of your book um when you're doing a retrospective you know you've (laughs) you've you've, again that the timing is is just so that the 20-year celebration is actually such um what are some of the pieces that that were really important to you obviously there were a lot of you know historical considerations, categories and stuff that that came into the writing of the volume. But but what are the ones that that really stand out to you as as critical to the story of TAC? Yeah, I mean, the reason that I wanted to frame it as the future of the right, I wanted to be a little more ambitious than a collection for the sake of posterity. Mm-hmm. As I look back through the back catalog, uh, I kind of mentioned these issues before, but it really seemed to me that we were prescient across foreign policy, political economy, what I broadly term American culture, which is basically immigration and defining uh, defining and defending a uniquely American way of life, um, and faith and family. So that's the, the way that I wanted to group this anthology. Um, if you look at you know the specific pieces in there that completely stand out, um, there was a piece in 2007, I believe, mm-hmm. by Anatole Levin that made the case that 
pushing NATO expansion could force us into a new Cold War with Russia. Hmm. 2007, right? Um, Much think. Exactly. Um, I, I know. I, I read that. And it was literally like it could have been written, you know, a year ago. Yeah. And here we are in a really precarious situation with with Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the faith and family section, it was really interesting to revisit some of the pre-Obergefell pieces on marriage. Mm. Um, people forget, people I calling think, it a slippery slope and the slope was indeed slippery. It, I mean, exactly. Like this was a live political issue. It was winning at the ballot box. And then suddenly you have a Supreme Court come in and just completely shut that down. And all of corporate America jumps on it. Um, it was really interesting to see some of the warnings that we have in there. Margaret McConnell, who's a lawyer here in town, um, talked about how if you redefine marriage, it's going to deny the ideal that no parent should abandon his child. And now we see things like uh, renting wombs and surrogacy and all this kind of stuff. I mean, that's you can draw a straight line in, mm-hmm. in my view. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, you know, if you look at especially on the social conservatives issues, there's a number of pieces in there. Rod Dreher has a great piece about sex after Christianity, mm-hmm. um, how this sexual revolution really is going to the heart of the Christian vision of the human mm-hmm. person. Um, so I could go on. But there's, you know, yeah. each each section, I think, has its own contributions to the magazine's history in the current moment. What's it like when you're um, following on on deaf ears? I mean, it, being able to go back at, and look in 2007 at a piece that was essentially prescient is fun now. Um, but but what has it um, you know been like to be the lonely voice, uh, specifically on the issue of foreign policy, but certainly uh, other issues as well from a coalitional perspective? I mean, D.C. is a small town. It's a place where a lot of people know each other, and I see TAC. Uh, as a co-sponsor and a partner on all sorts of events and tech people are invited to all the cool parties these days, certainly to ours. Um, but that wasn't always the case. What are some of the stories you heard of, of what it's like to be someone in Washington writing pieces like that for tech anytime but now? Well, I think, I mean, one of the main things I've taken from looking back at this project um, is is sort of a What's your always your riff that we're gonna write uh, write essays, essays at, at each other, other until we all die? Yes, <laughs> I will um, ask you about that. But yeah, no, I mean, look, I I take that criticism that too many people are doing that. Um, but how, how did American Moment get founded? You you it, read you read JD Vance's I, essay, yeah. right? Like I and, mean, and JD Vance became a national figure because of a blog post that Rod Rare wrote. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I I think these things can exist in tension. And what I realized, you know, the more that I look back at, at us, at, at this era when we were completely written out of the movement and not being invited to the parties and not co-sponsoring things and things like that, um, is that the ideas really do matter and that middle brown magazines of ideas really have an impact and, and in a certain way define where the conservative movement goes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if you look historically, that's always been the case. Mm-hmm. You look at National Review in the 50s with fusionism, commentary and neoconservatism. Obviously, the Weekly Standard, RIP, had a huge impact on the Bush White House. And I think that we're in a moment where we need a, a new middle brow magazine of ideas. Obviously, I think that should be us. <laughs> um, but no, that's been the big takeaway for me is that, you know, take your point about we need actual action, too, which is why what you're doing in American Moment is so important. But these ideas do matter, too. And we need a forum to hash that out. One of the issues that I think there's probably the most tension between what could be called old tack and new tack is potentially economics. It seems like on trade there was basically kind of a consensus, but there's now a much more expanded vision of political economy that um, the faction of the right that we occupy uh, is grappling with. Um, what do you make of the criticism that, hey, this is in tension with all the like realist libertarian types that were writing for the magazine back in the day that, yeah, maybe would be able to hold their nose on trade, but like really don't like all this idea of a child benefit or family policy and all this other stuff? 
I just I just think it depends on how you slice it, right? I, I'm not sure there's as much tension as it may appear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we've always welcomed a more heterodox conversation on economics. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the Buchananite protectionism is there. It has been from the beginning. That will continue to be there. Um, we're also wary of economic heterodoxy trending mm-hmm. too far towards planned economies and price controls and things like that. At the end of the day, to me, you know, it, it comes down to priorities, right? Mm-hmm. Does the does the nation exist to serve the market or does the market exist mm-hmm. to serve the nation? It should be the latter. Mm-hmm. And we need to make sure that it's the latter. And that's why I've been open to things like um, family policy, like reshoring manufacturing, uh, especially when you look at what's going on with Taiwan. We have to go economics first there. I mean, I think that that goes perfectly with a foreign policy of restraint, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you don't want to go to war to defend Taiwan, we sure as heck better be doing stuff economically mm-hmm. to make it so that we're not overextended and that we have to defend Taiwan mm-hmm. if an invasion happens. Um, so yeah, I, I think you know we want to host these types of debates. In my view, there's not as, quite as much tension as there might appear. Um, one of the interesting tensions between um, elite life in the United States and uh, you know the population of voters has always been like it, it looks demographically a little bit different. And in the conservative movement, um, one of the most obvious uh, examples of that, I think, is that there's a lot more intellectual Catholics uh, at the upper echelons of the conservative movement than there are in the voting population of the right. Um, the same could be said with TAC. TAC has a lot of Catholics and Orthodox people right now. Um, do you think that's a tension at all? Like the, the, the sort of small p populist vision of conservatism that you guys are advocating being so out of step with the religious practices of the country um, uh, as they stand today? I mean, as a Catholic, I think, that the, <laughs> I think that the faith is true and everyone should convert to the one true faith. But I would so say true. that I think, um, you know, I at least one of the things that motivates me, and I think this is consistent throughout Catholic political thought, mm-hmm. is that there needs to be, um, you know, this is one of my critiques of just sheer populism. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we can lament, oh, there's no... Uh, the, Congress is is overrepresented with people with college degrees. It's not represented in the country. I think a previous generation would have been like, of, of course that's the case. Mm-hmm. Like the college educated class is the class that belongs in Congress. It's it's mm-hmm. just a different role within the polity. Mm-hmm. But I think that the um, what we need to realize as sort of the intellectual class, for lack of a better term, I, I don't like that, but for those of us who are working in politics, is there needs to be a, a much better sense of solidarity between the classes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's actually a... Uh, an insight that the sort of overwhelmingly Catholic um, representative of, of the conservative movement can actually really channel here. I think it's a very Catholic sense. Um, we need to be representing the interests of our countrymen who are not here in Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and so I guess, I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think um, at its best, a Catholic political class mm-hmm. can and should do that. Mm-hmm. What do you make in terms of any tension in political priorities um, that say, very Catholic-minded people might have versus, say, you know, the combination of evangelicals, softer Catholics, and nuns that make up the, you know, N-O-N-E, uh, not N-U-N, uh, that make up the the broad base of the Republican Party. Well, I mean, it depends on what you're, which Catholics you're talking about, right? Yeah. I mean, like, I don't see, um, you know, you, you can point to something like immigration. I see no... Uh, conflict between a Catholic politics and a, an extremely restricted immigration policy. I think mm-hmm. it's better for those who are here. It's better for those who want to get here. Mm-hmm. Um, so these, there's some intra-conservative mm-hmm. or in, intra-Catholic fights that you can point to. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't see that much of a disconnect. I, I'm simply uh, giving voice to, to critics from the outside. I <laughs> tend to agree with everything that you just said. Um, 
the term paleoconservative gets thrown around a lot to the extent that there are uh, representatives of paleoconservatism in the United States. It's probably Chronicles Magazine and you guys. Uh, does that term mean anything to you? Is it outdated? Uh, I don't see this magazine entitled The American Paleoconservative. Why Why is it not called that? Um, and, and how do you think about adjectives and labels in this day and age? I mean, I think there's a couple ways to look at it. I enjoy the intellectual debates. I fully recognize that this goes back decades, right? There's big differences uh, when you talk about the, the genesis of the American regime, uh, Lincoln's place in it between paleocons and Straussians and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, there's intellectual differences between the paleoconservative school and our friends at the Claremont Institute. I think it's really interesting now that these sort of decades old intellectual fights have ended up with people basically in the same place. I mean, mm -hmm. if you look at kind of the, the conservatism that we put forward on the issues, mm -hmm. it's very similar to what the Straussians, the Claremont Institute are doing. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, I mean, I think, look, I, I think that these intellectual uh, debates are, are important. We have a whole fellows program where we try to hash that out and make the case for sort of more paleoconservative vision. Um, but when you look at day-to-day -day politics, I'm not sure how um, how salient those sort of prefixes to conservative are. Uh, if you're actually looking to move the ball forward on, on issue sets, like let's work with people who agree with us nine times out of ten. On an interpersonal level, uh, what's that been like to to take inherited grudges and put them down uh, for a while? I mean, I see Claremont staffers uh, writing for TAC all the time. I see TAC people doing Claremont fellowships. I think I even saw that you guys are co-sponsoring an event with them. And golly gee, next time people will be wearing pants on their heads and stuff. I mean, what, what's <laughs> what's what's it been like to to be the generation, um, both at TAC but also more broadly in like paleocon world? that decides to put those those old battles down? I mean, I think it's a it's an important thing to navigate because I, I don't want to discount the importance of these intellectual disagreements. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a reason that a generation before us went to bat for these things. They really do matter. Mm -hmm. And I think if this was a different political moment, we mm -hmm. might see the, the policies that stem from these mm -hmm. intellectual dis disagreements be more different, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we need to be. If they weren't trying to trans your kids, then maybe <laughs> no, we it, could have really I mean, exactly like, eloquent discourses on Leo Strauss. We we need to to realize what we're up against. You know, um, we need to realize that the the left is the real threat here, um, and those of us who are willing to fight and have a more muscular conservatism need to to work together. But that doesn't mean that these these intellectual disputes are are unimportant. Well, but and isn't the argument that well we need to all unite and fight the left what the political establishment says too? Uh how do you how They do don't you really want to fight the left. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm giving you a hard time because because it matters. Yes. Um so okay, um point well taken. In that case then, what does the coalition today look like? Um you know, the traditional answer to uh, what is the elite level coalition on the right look like under fusionists under national review was social conservatives who get their social conservative issues, economic libertarians who get their issues and um, and, you know, foreign policy uh, demented people who get their issues. <laughs> um, what, what What is the elite level coalition in a couple of buckets look like in your mind in the 2020s? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And it's something that we try to hash out a lot in the pages of the magazine. Um I think that it's, you know, we, a lot of people talk about fusionism has failed. The three-legged mm -hmm. school has failed. Like I'm sympathetic to a ton of that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's undeniable that we need to put something back together again. Mm -hmm. We need some form of coalition, call it fusionism, call it whatever you will. If we want to be, if we want to have an actually viable movement. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I always, you know, I always ask 
a lot of people around town, like what puts you on the right, right? Because if you look at, again, the history of this magazine and even my own politics, uh, especially a lot of the foreign policy stuff, even some of the economic stuff, you know, a, a prior generation of conservatives would just say, you're, you're not a conservative, you're, you're a lefty. And what it always comes back to, or what it seems like it always comes back to to me when you say, why are you on the right? Is that they're just not okay with transing the kids. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, they're not okay with fundamentally transforming this country. It's mm -hmm. people who genuinely uh, like the, this country mm -hmm. and its history and want it to basically stay the way that it is. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and I think especially as the left gets more radical, that's actually something that we can unite around, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> people who aggressively want to defend what's good about this country. Um, we can tinker around the edges on a lot of stuff, but I think that that, that sort of centering mm -hmm. uh, goes to a lot of these different issues that we've talked about. What, do you, what would you say to the kind of revolutionary ethos that a lot of people have on the right now, which is that we have lost so much that simply adopting the posture of, of conservation isn't good enough anymore? I'm, just, I'm not quite there yeah. again. Like I, <laughs> I, I read all those guys. I listen to all these those yeah. guys. I like all those guys. I just, I think that there's still enough left here. Now, look, we have a very short window of time. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm concerned with my own kids, you know, I, one election cycle, donate $3 and 42 cents. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds yeah. like we're, we're pitching for, yeah. for Tuesday in the midterms. Yeah. Um, but I do think, I mean, this is to me why, this is why the immigration issue is so important. Mm -hmm. um, and why I mentioned before that it's not, the, the, the situation that we have now with mm -hmm. the porous border is not good for either the people already here or the ones who want to come and join this country. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a message we have to really get across. If we don't do something about this soon, the America that we've all known and loved is, is not going to exist. Mm -hmm. It'll be fundamentally transformed. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's still enough there that we can and should seek to conserve mm -hmm. it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to, to a lot of these more, you know, there's nothing left to conserve people's point. Like it, we don't have a lot of time left or we will be at that point very quickly. What would you say your posture is towards institutions, right? So maybe the, one of the biggest differences in the 20 intervening years since TAC was founded is that formerly, uh, patriotic institutions, or maybe a better way to put it is that institutions, uh, that were the, the sort of representativeness uh, the, the representatives of the best of what America had to offer have completely been like colored out from the inside and worn as a skin suit by our enemies, whether that's things like elite colleges, things like the government, the military, um, uh, the NFL. I mean, I'm NFL. a big football fan. The right. Redskins are no more. Right. It's ridiculous. So, so like, you know, to the extent that I'm, I'm sure that this piece has existed in almost every issue for the last 20 years of tech, you know, some sort of, you know, kind of wispy, nostalgic overview of some sort of great bedrock of American life, whether it's a sports game or, you know, X, Y, or Z thing. Um, it seems like every single day the left takes some nice thing and says, that's cool. We're going to invert that from the inside. <laughs> this is downstream of the institutional question, but how does uh, a, a, a TAC reader and leader uh, contend with the fact that all of the really cool institutions in American life are slowly getting ripped out one by one? Rod got a lot of criticism, Rod Dreher, for his Benedict option. Mm -hmm. I think he's basically right. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that in the intervening years, that was published in 2017, so it's been like five years mm -hmm. now. In the intervening years, even a lot of people who criticized him on the ideas there are basically doing the Benedict option with their families. I mean, I certainly am, right? Like, we can go back and forth about what is the Benedict option, that kind of stuff. My reading is that at its heart, it's the institutions are rotten to the core. Mm -hmm. They failed us. And if you want to actually raise your kids... Um, as healthy, virtuous people who love this country, you need to sort of strategically retreat from those institutions. Mm -hmm. And that can just mean sending your kids to parochial school or homeschool. I mean, 
my wife and I are doing this. We grew up together in Herndon, Virginia, and we both went to the same high school. It's right down the street from where we live now. Love my my hometown and my community. I could never send my kids to that high school. Mm-hmm. We're, we're going to you know, send them to the, the Catholic school. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that's the Benedict option, that sure, great. And that's a way to protect your family and your kids, the next generation, mm-hmm. from these completely rotten institutions. While you know, we have people working to to reform them and to use the levers of power to actually um, hopefully get to a place where you don't have to do that in the future. Right. I think, I think you've made this point that school choice is great, but like not everyone can do that. And it, it should be in the interest of conservatives and, you know, patriotic Americans to have a public school system that doesn't suck and that you, you can actually send your kids to. Well, and you know, one of the honorees at your, at your gala next week, uh, or two weeks from now is, uh, often, you know, uh, framing it as exactly this, that there is a fight to be had in our public schools and we should not uh, abandon it um, just because, uh, you know, we, we want to champion school choice. Look, the yellow scarf people maybe make some good points, but like at some point, like they haven't managed to increase the school choice all that much in the last 20 years. And we should really focus on some of the opportunities that that exist in, in places um, like this. What do you make of um, the particular time that we're in right now where it seems like uh you know a lot of things uh are up for grabs in terms of ideological paradigm shift so we, we don't have a republican president in office right now uh we're probably going to have some presidential announcements in like the next three months is my guess um, <laughs> i think trump's just like waiting for the midterms right <laughs> what, what, what do you think the opportunities and the risks are do you think do you think the uh we're, we're, we're at risk of losing some of the gains we've made along these ideas uh from the trump era what would that look like what would co-optation look like yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a real risk, right? Um, you've already seen this rhetorically a little bit. Mm-hmm. Everyone's a realist now on mm-hmm. foreign policy. That means really nobody is, right? Mm-hmm. But they people have seen that 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 rhetoric resonates. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something everyone's really... an America first MAGA Republican, exactly, or an America first MAGA constitutional conservative Republican, <laughs> like to give the you know America first MAGA constitutional conservative Tea Party Republican to put all the skin suits on, yes. on at once, yeah. So it's, it's, look, it's something we absolutely have to be concerned about. Um, this is, I think, the the value of a, a magazine or a publication is it can really assess these things. Because I, I think you're absolutely going to see the GOP primary in 24 have multiple people wanting to return to the pre-2016 consensus who are you know strategically adopting rhetoric from the Trump moment. Mm-hmm. Um and it's it's going to be up to the the political class to call them out, right? Um, it's going to be up to magazines who who you know hopefully get it, publications mm-hmm. who get it, to um, to say no, they're they're not actually channeling the interests of the people. I want to throw some media theory out here. So at the time where TAC was launched, when TAC was launched, it was basically on the eve of the internet era. Um, you know, it was already started kind of coming about. I'm assuming there were some early blogs and stuff. I don't think National Review's blog had launched yet, but it might have at that point. Um, why a, a magazine? Why is that the format to communicate with people? Um, you know, obviously, TAC has not been monistic in its outlook because there is also a TAC weblog that I have contributed to um, a couple of times. Uh, how, how do you guys think about the format that you guys operate and what its future and uh, may hold? Well, there's there's a couple ways to look at that. I mean, you know, we have a print magazine still. I actually love the print magazine. I think it anchors our editorial process really well. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of our readership is online. Mm-hmm. I think it's just how it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so you can look at it in that way that, like, we are invested online and that a lot of our readership is there. Um, 
but you can also look at it. I mean, we're, we're both very online. We know that like the very online right is a thing. And I think a lot of those ideas are really important. When you look at, you know, needing to reach a certain subset, I think there's a big need a lot of times to translate the uh, more rough edged wild ideas that float around in the internet um, and distill that and sort of put forward something that, um, there was a seed oil issue of uh, the American conservative. Exactly. No, exactly. I mean, that, that stuff, that chatter does matter, yeah. right? But yeah. like someone needs to to sort of translate that to something that, you know, sits on um, coffee tables in congressional offices, <laughs> right? Um, I think there's that's a really important role to play. You know, yeah. you, you have to sort of distill that down, pick what's too wild and fringy, fringy pick what's actually, you know, hitting on some, some important themes. Mm-hmm. And have a, a, a medium that can that can do that, and mm-hmm. that's you know a lot of what we we hope to do, and that's why we have the print magazine, and that's you know why we seek to be a, a sort of middle brow magazine of ideas. Mm-hmm. What um, what do you make of the pace that um, modern media operates at, and how an institution like tech can adapt to to that? You know, I mean, at this point, we live in the era of Twitter. Um, it's so unhealthy. So- <laughs> I mean, there, there's a part of me that's just like a complete tech pessimist, mm-hmm. you know, Wendell Berry, want to move to the the country and, and do my farming thing, uh, which I know you absolutely hate. Yeah. But no, I, that, a lot of that comes out for me um, with with social media, mm-hmm. with the pace of the, the sort of 24 hour news cycle. Mm-hmm. I just think it's really unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's unhealthy to living a life of virtue. It's unhealthy for our politics. Uh, now, it's it's a fact of of life nowadays and mm-hmm. we have to contend with it. That's another reason I like the fact that we have print because every mm-hmm. two months our editorial staff is forced to take a step back and say, okay, we have a definitive number of pages. Let's look at this current political moment in this season of this year. What do we think is the most important thing to say? Mm-hmm. What do we actually want to get out there? So, and again, all the print stuff goes online, but um, you know, even just having that, that editorial mechanism in place, mm-hmm. I think is actually really helpful to avoid some of the more poisonous elements of this horrible, you know, social media uh, catastrophe that we have. You know, technology is an interesting thing because it's another one of the like fundamental elements of American society that's changed uh, since TAC was launched to now. I mean, that so many of the things that are different about the world around us today can be ascribed to technology. What does the paleocon or the American conservative, you know, capital T, capital A, capital C? say about technology is it pure techno pessimism you know speak for yourself speak for the magazine uh and i'm sure you've published many many a line on it but but what's what is the the uh, uh you know what are the core tenets of the american conservative it's it's family uh peace uh culture um and uh forgetting one more but economics you tell. Yes. economics that's right yeah. uh i'll just speak for myself because i think that i, I actually think that this debate of techno optimism, te- techno pessimism is one of the most important happening, not just on the right, but on the sort of like broad new right space. Um, Ross Douthat had a column about this in the New York Times. I can't remember what it was like, it was like a year ago or so, mm-hmm. where he kind of outlined these broad camps, right? The Silicon Valley techno optimist side, the sort of crunchy con, Dreyer, uh, you know, the techno pessimist side. Um, and I think that that's a really lively and, and super important debate that that this segment of the right needs to have. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I, I myself, I find myself more on the techno pessimist side. Um, the, the the older my kids get, the more I see that as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that TV just rots their brains. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely hate that. Um, and and yeah, so I, I think it, tech can be harnessed for good. It is a tool. My concern, and I think part of why 
my sympathies tilt that way is that we're not talking about, you know, um, the, the internal combustion engine. We're talking about in your pocket computers that, you know, completely rewire a lot of the way that we think and interact with people. Um, and if we don't get a handle on that, I think it can have really bad effects mm-hmm. for our society. I want to spend the last third or so of her time talking about a kind of meta life of running an institution like this. One of the interesting things that happened to Tack over the course of its lifetime is it went from a for-profit publication uh, to a nonprofit organization called the American Ideas Institute that publishes the American Conservative. Um, I guess tying back to our earlier, uh, you know, tangent about the media landscape, why was that broadly speaking necessary? And, um, you know, what do you make of the conservative nonprofit ecosystem today and and what tax tax role in that is? I mean, I think for publications, especially for these sort of niche magazines, it's absolutely necessary Mm -hmm. to go to that nonprofit model. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you only need to point to the Weekly Standard to show why, Mm -hmm. right? They, They had a big corporate owner who decided that in the Trump era, a Trump skeptical magazine didn't serve any purpose, pulled the plug and funded the Washington Examiner. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're very fortunate that we have a broad base of philanthropic support, which means that we can pursue our mission and and sort of craft an editorial line that is is true to that mission. Um, So that was a key to to, our success, I think, over the last 10 years or so. We became a nonprofit, I think it was around 2010. Um, But the other element of that too, right, is that it's just not, (laughs) it's not possible to fund a magazine on subscriptions alone. Um, so I look, I think I think it's actually a really uh, healthy part of the conservative movement. I think it's a healthy part of American society, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's a long history of civil society and philanthropy, people giving their money to causes they believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, I see no reason that shouldn't be a political magazine. You are one of the youngest nonprofit uh, executives on the right. Um, there's a club of us, I think, uh, to be, <laughs> you made. got me beat by a number of years. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, well, I, I, I'm weird. Um, but, I, uh, I have no business being here. Um, what's frustrated you about how this world operates? Peel back the curtain a little bit. What's, what's the world of conservative nonprofit philanthropy actually like behind the scenes and, and coming into it as someone young with something to prove what has annoyed the crap out of you? <laughs> Well, I always say that I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's an accident that both myself and my staff is very young mm-hmm. uh, across the board. We're very young now that, you know, we were founded 20 years ago by Pat Buchanan, who's not young at this point. Mm-hmm. I think it's his birthday today, by the way. Happy oh, birthday, Pat. Happy birthday, so Pat. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think it's an accident because the ideas that the, the sort of brand of conservatism that that we're trying to advance is one that really resonates with. With younger people, I mean, this is this is America moment, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is why you guys are here. Um, but as as you might have found, that does cause some challenges because the sort of donor class um, is much older. I mean, that's just that's just the fact of it. And they also have relationships that have been built up for years, decades now, right? So um, philanthropy is based on relationships. People give to people more than they give to organizations and causes. And if you have, you know, become really close with the head of an organization, if you're if you're the head of, of, of a foundation, a conservative foundation, you've gotten really close to the head of, of an organization over 20, 30 years. It matters a lot less whether the work that they're doing is relevant than mm-hmm. it does that, like, that's the guy that you've known for 30 years mm-hmm. and you like him and you think he's doing good work. So I think that is a challenge. Now, you know, fortunately, um, <laughs> One, people like to reach the next generation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, people like to say, 
is what I'm doing, is is my giving going to actually turn this country around? So if they see that a lot of young people are involved, a lot, a lot of young people are leading the organization that can help. Um, and also the ideas are with us, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, this is this is the moment for this style, <laughs> this style of conservatism. I love having an organization title that can be slipped into sentences that easily. <laughs> um, the, the riff on the interests of the donor class are interesting. What what have you seen change about your median conservative donor in terms of their worldview over the last few years? I mean, this goes a little bit back to uh, what I said before about just sort of having a vague sense of liking this country and mm-hmm. wanting it to stay the same. Um, I don't. I think that the, I actually think, despite my last answer, I think that the the conservative donor class actually gets somewhat of a bad rap in our circles. Mm-hmm. Um, most of these people are hardworking, patriotic Americans who worked hard during mm-hmm. their, their whole life and, and now have uh, money to generously give away. And uh, one of the thing that, things that's been encouraging in the Trump moment is I think <laughs> I think the Trump campaign, the Trump presidency, um, sort of made a lot of this donor class realize that like there was a disconnect between their giving and what was happening in Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that that pre- presents an opportunity now I don't think they're very ideological, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think that they simply love this country mm-hmm. <laughs> and want to save it. Mm-hmm. And that's great. That's mm-hmm. where I'm at too. What do you think their biases are being older people on the ideological side? And you know, you mentioned the interpersonal relationships that they may have with their legacy grantees. Um, but beyond that, what, what do you think their limitations are as a class? I mean, I think, um, you know, th- there is a, there's less of a sense of urgency, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and look, especially on this, this foreign policy issue, like there's more residual Reaganism mm-hmm. of peace through strength. Yeah. But Russia bad. It, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, so Which there it are, is, but again, but, and this is, but I mean, this is the, the challenge and the opportunity yeah. in the sense that like, I actually agree with a lot of that, yeah. you know, it just, it needs to be channeled in the right direction. Like, yeah, like shouldn't have invaded. Um, yeah. We should have a, a strong national defense just mm-hmm. needs to be used selectively. Mm-hmm. So again, th- there are things to navigate there, but it's also a big opportunity to, you know, actually show show the donor class that there are mm-hmm. good things happening that they can also support. Do you have any funny reactions from longtime subscribers or donors to the seed oils issue? Was that was that too <laughs> avant garde for them? How did they? Most of it was, what the heck is that? <laughs> uh, my wife is still not on board with that. I've been trying to steer her away from the vegetable yeah. oils you, and you, stuff. You keep stealing the Crisco and throwing it out back. <laughs> yeah, no, but like literally, I got her to get like a like coconut oil or something. Yeah. Like that. I don't even know what it was. Yeah. Um, she was not pleased about that. But yeah. but right, no, that it's a good yeah. example that like, Biden's inflation and you're trying to put coconut oil in the house on top of that. You know? Right, <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, it's it's a low luxury good <laughs> yeah what, what what do you make of um you know what, what do you think those avant-garde issues are that are likely to become more salient that tack hopes to be able to feature in the coming months and years <laughs> the very first one comes to mind uh tucker's end of men documentary did you see that <laughs> i have not seen it yet but i want to um there's some wild stuff in there <laughs> and uh yeah will there be a tack issue on tanning your balls <laughs> We're going to steer clear of, of, of that. But the plight of men, I think, is is a really underreported, under-talked about thing in this mm-hmm. country. Um, you know, I, again, I, I take it back to my family. I, I have three daughters now. I, I talked to Big Game before I got married that I was like, going to have all boys because mm-hmm. I can't handle daughters. So, yeah, of course, you, you and Nick both. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, God's like, here's three daughters, probably on my way to seven. Um, but I think about like who they're going to marry, right? Like, I mean, if I ever let them out of the house onto a date, I'd want them to meet to to meet and, and marry like 
a man, right? Yeah. Like, a, like a real, like, you know, yeah. American man. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's the challenges that men face are, are much higher. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that needs to be explored a lot more. Obviously the, the manosphere and all those very online places are, um, getting way ahead on that. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that the mainstream conversation is very ripe for that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because I think this is another great example of where maybe legacy social conservatives actually aren't super up to the task, right? You think about the framing that a lot of them bring to the table on gender issues. It's, 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 it's often with very much the same sort of like moral lens as the left. It's always like, well, X, Y, and Z is bad because it's actually the worst thing for women, or it's actually, um, you know, uh, not feminist enough, or it's actually, you know, uh, letting men off the hook when in reality, there's been no attention broadly in politics and public policy on is something good for men. I really think we need to break out of that that frame mm. that the left operates mm. in. Like the minute you get sucked into that. Dems are the real sexist. Dems are the real exactly. racist. Dems are the real XYZs. And especially on the gender issues, yeah. right? Like we should be able to say men and women are different. Mm-hmm. They serve different, equally important roles within our society and as conservatives, mm-hmm. we should encourage mm-hmm. women to be women and men to be men mm-hmm. um, and, and stop with this whole, you know, actually <laughs> X thing that I hate is bad because it's bad mm-hmm. for, for women or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's such an important rhetorical shift that needs to happen like yesterday. One of the other interesting changes in the global landscape since TAC was launched is that I think arguably at TAC's founding, there was basically like one game in town. Uh the U.S. and now there's like examples of places where interesting experiments in what could you know be called paleoconservative governance are happening. How do you think about that side of things? Uh, you know, uh, be, being more internationalist in your in your conservative politics and 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 paying attention. Uh, you basically to mean going. Hungary? <laughs> yeah, no, but like beyond that, right? I mean, there's interesting stuff happening everywhere from Hungary to Israel to India to Brazil to you know uh, and a bunch of other places uh, beyond that. Um, what, what what does TAC make of all that? I watch it with great interest. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we've obviously, especially on the Hungarian one, we've we've written a lot about what's going on there. Um, I always, you know, I, I, I think, you know, largely supportive of mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff. I do think that we need to remember that this country is unique. This country is, is different from Hungary, for sure. It's different from Brazil. It's different from all these places. Um, and what works there very well might not work here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just think this country is just too big, mm-hmm. you know, like... It, this is why, at my heart, I, I'm somewhat of a localist. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm a Virginian. Virginia is about the what same. What does that mean? That means like, that my... what, what is Virginian political identity in the 21st century? Oh, that's <laughs> right. No, but I think, I, look, it's it's somewhat more aspirational than mm-hmm. it is, um, you know, concrete at this point. But I think one of the problems with a country of 330 million people, and we see this throughout the right, is that your national identity becomes an abstraction. It becomes my allegiance to this American idea. And that's, I think, really dangerous for a whole number of reasons. Instead, we should derive our patriotism from the concrete uh, relationships and practices and, and you know, experiences that order the rhythms of our life uh, in a concrete way in our local places, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, I, I always say, that, like, I'm a proud American because of my attachments in Herndon, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, a, I'm an American through that. I think especially in a country this big, uh, we really need to stay rooted in those concrete sort of attachments rather than just, you know, hatching, latching on to the American idea, which mm. is just a complete abstraction. 
You mentioned earlier that TAC is in the middle of sort of a paradigm shift where it's going from the opposition to the mainstream to becoming more and more the mainstream. Uh, I tend to agree with that. Um, practically speaking, for the magazine, for its attitude, for the institution more broadly, what does that mean changing in terms of its behavior to politics, to D.C., um, to the entire country? No, it's actually a really big challenge. Um, you know, during the Bush years, we developed pretty sharp elbows because we were getting attacked from every single side, mm -hmm. um, which I think totally makes sense, right? Like when you're everyone I don't like is a communist, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean when you're getting attacked like that, you're going to be very critical. <laughs> yes. um, and so one of the the sort of dispositional shifts that needs to happen that I've been trying to make happen is just understanding that um, you know the, the tent's a little bit bigger, mm -hmm. right? Um, we might disagree with people here and there on things. That doesn't necessarily mean that we need to have a very narrow lane on the right anymore. Uh, we need to bring these people along mm -hmm. rather than show everyone else on the right how they're wrong and we're right. Mm -hmm. um, so it's I don't I don't see this intention with, you know, um, watering down our distinct ideological approach, our distinct mm -hmm. editorial line. I think it's just an awareness now that people are much more open to mm -hmm. it. So we need to to have uh, less sharp elbows mm -hmm. than we might have had before. When the 30th anniversary issue of TAC comes out, what are going to be the pieces written this coming decade that you think are going to be reflected on? And I <laughs> recognize that's a weird question to ask, but I suppose it's just an Depends extension. Depends on what happens this decade. <laughs> well, but I, I suppose it's an extension of, um, you know, imputing like you did with the piece about American men. What do you think the salient political issues that TAC's going to be right on and the rest of the conservative movement's going to be wrong on? Are this decade my hope is that we are right on those issues and the conservative movement is right because <laughs> because we've all gotten succeeded exactly Correct. um no it's 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 a good question um look i think there's really two tracks here there's a, there's a foreign policy track and a domestic track mm -hmm. um domestically we we have to do something to stop the just steamrolling social liberalism mm -hmm. i mean who would have thought in 20 what 2012 when i think obama at that point was still against gay marriage mm -hmm. that we would have twerking drag queens in our schools right mm -hmm. like i i shudder to think where that's going to be if we mm -hmm. don't do our jobs right now i'm hopeful because we're starting to see some people push back on this but we need to mm -hmm. we need to keep moving in that direction mm -hmm. um on the foreign policy side you know I, I think that the china challenge is going to be central mm -hmm. to really this century mm -hmm. and it presents uh again both challenges and opportunities to those who want to see a more restrained foreign policy mm -hmm. Uh, you talked earlier about how do we know if people are going to co-opt sort of, you know, th this political moment. I am very concerned about that with China mm -hmm. um, because it's a different challenge that may require more realism than restraint to the extent that they're opposed. And I'm not entirely sure that they are, um, but it, it is a real threat, right? In, in ways that I think, you know, Syria and Libya, like whatever, uh, China is, is a real threat to this country. And so um, getting that right and avoiding a sort of civilizational conflict uh with a rising china I you're think telling me that really tech will never do the classic you know dragon encircling the world style <laughs> middle to highbrow magazine well, thing <laughs> this is the problem though right is that i think you have many uh unreformed hawks on the right who see the failures in the middle east see that that's sort of uh, you know 
there's not a lot of cachet left there. there's not a lot their, there their and arabic so, degree is really not any good anymore exactly so they're like all right well whatever uh we can pivot now to china and just i'm gonna learn what wolf warrior means going. and suddenly be a china guy <laughs> yes yeah so that's that's a real yeah. problem that we have to face and it's even trickier too because again unlike those backwater countries in the middle east china is a real threat mm-hmm. um so we kind of have to to balance those two things mm-hmm. and then on the domestic side taking over social liberalism uh, or, you know, stopping it's, it's tied fine, but what does the other suite of domestic policy issues actually, actually look like and, and what, where are the fights going to be on the right? Well, I mean, I, I do think that a lot of them are connected, right? Mm-hmm. Like the plight of men, the fact that we have uh, schools that are basically parenting the kids instead of the, the families, mm-hmm. a lot of that's connected to um, men not being able to find jobs right, and provide for their families. So, we need to to build a more robust pro-family economy. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I like most about Blake Masters is that he had the courage to say that you should be able to raise a family on one single income. Mm-hmm. Why have no other Republican politicians been saying that? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to have an actual, uh, you know, tight-knit pro-family community, then you need families to be able to both support themselves mm-hmm. and also, you know, support their, their children. Mm-hmm. Um, I see, you know, my wife has a harder job than I do. She's looking after our three kids. That's a much harder job than mm-hmm. going on a podcast and talking. Um, so we really need to to rebuild an American economy that, that provides that kind of work. Mm-hmm. But I see all of these things connected to just <laughs> creating a, a country where you can just live a virtuous life in the place that you were born. That shouldn't be that hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that that, to the extent that we have, we have not focused on that, is the extent that we've gotten away from it and it can't happen anymore. Mm-hmm. If there was uh, one piece that you would say best captures America, uh, the American conservatives' style that no one else would publish? What would you say it is? <laughs> Our style? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I like What's to... What's the weirdest thing you guys have published? That's really what I'm getting at. <laughs> uh, where, where to start? Um, I will give a plug to longtime columnist columnist bill kaufman mm. um he has a you know long and storied career since here in washington i believe on the, the democratic side of the aisle for a while and um great writer uh one of the best sort of prose essayists in my view um writing in america today he's also a a foremost defender of local life which is why i like to give him a shout out he's mm-hmm. a proud native of batavia new york i believe it is mm-hmm. um and every time he files a piece for every issue it's the first thing I read uh, because it's always just eclectic. Mm-hmm. Um, he had one in the last issue about the sociologist Robert Nisbet, who I think is one of the forgotten champions of, of our sort of brand. Yeah, of one of your donor clubs is called the Exactly. The it paired very nicely. I had the Nisbet <laughs> piece, and then there was a plug for the Nisbet Society <laughs> on the next page. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, we have been an eclectic magazine uh, throughout our history, especially because we were sort of not in that the sort of mainstream of the mm-hmm. right. Um and I would just encourage everyone to go check out Bill Kaufman's back catalog because it's fantastic. Very cool. Emil, where can people uh, pay attention to everything TAC is doing? Uh, I think you have an event coming up. I want to give you a chance to plug that. What should they be keeping their eyes out for? T- tell us all about it. 
Yeah, we got a lot going on. Uh, TheAmericanConservative.com. You can find all of our new content it's a bit of a up there. <laughs> a little bit. That's yeah. uh, how much would TAC.com cost? <laughs> we'll have, like hundreds we'll have to of thousands of dollars. That. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, you'll find everything there. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get more involved, become a member. Uh, we're really trying to to grow our membership base. We talked about the business model. That's hugely helpful for that. Mm-hmm. You also get special perks and things like that. So check all that out at the website uh, on Twitter at AmconMag. And then, yes, as you mentioned, we're celebrating 20 years this year. So November 17th, we have our big 20th anniversary celebration. Should be a great event uh, in Alexandria, Virginia, Red State, Virginia. Mm. That's why we're doing it over there. Uh, Dan Bishop, who's become a leader on all of our issues. And we're also going to honor Chris Rufo and former Senator Jim Webb with awards. Um, So we'll, yeah, have all that information on the website as well. It's going to be a party and we'll be there. Emil, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Glad that you guys stayed till the end for that because it might be a special treat for you if you listened all the way to the end. If you're a dedicated listener to this podcast, then we actually have a discount code for uh, listeners of Moment of Truth and Friends of American Moment. If you email podcast at AmericanMoment.org and you're not weird, chances are we might give you that discount code. Um, but even if you don't end up taking them up on that, be sure to go to the American Conservatives Gala here on November 17th. We are co-sponsoring it. Uh, be sure to check out everything else that American Moment has cooking. Go to our website. AmericanMoment.org. There you can find the backlog of this podcast, news updates about programs we're doing. I believe there'll be a couple of new program applications launching very shortly. They may even be up by now. And you can also rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, like and subscribe on YouTube. It really does help us in the algorithms. It helps us uh, make sure that we can keep putting this podcast out. We're going full steam to the end of the year. Some awesome guests and getting ready for season three of Moment of Truth, which will be even better. It only goes goes up from here as a uh, who was it um kimberly gilfoyle said the best is yet to come so uh thank you guys as always for listening uh week in and week out you guys always show up uh thank you for being the moment of truth faithful and thank you as always for tuning in we will see you guys next week moment of truth is an american moment studios production filmed at the conservative partnership center Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.